Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. From Autosport.com and Autosport Magazine, I'm Martin Lee, and this is the Autosport Podcast. Welcome back to the next episode in our mini-series looking at the top tens and today another top ten to enjoy. But if you liked our first series entirely put together by our chief editor Kevin Turner, uh, maybe you like the twist we've given this series where our editors are choosing their own top tens and uh, Kev gets to be pundits. Uh, for want of a better word. Today we're looking at the top 10 Minardi Formula 1 drivers. The team today known as Alpha Tauri started life as Minardi. An underdog run on a fraction of the budget of its rivals. Now Minardi will shortly be usurped by Red Bull for ninth in the list of World Championship F1 starts. But that is indeed an indication of how many starts uh, they did have. And you may be surprised about how many drivers' names you recognise on our top ten list today. Let's get into it uh, with the person that put this list together. And that is James Newbold. So why Minardi and why this list? Hi Martin. You could argue that Minardi is the little team that, that everyone loved back in the day. It was Italy's other team, so Ferrari was winning everything, but there was also this plucky uh, underdog outfit that was scrabbling with often outdated engines, and usually the chassis were actually pretty good, but the engines held them back. They had this 
brilliant knack of finding young talents that would go on to brighter and, and, and better things. All in all, there were 37 drivers that came through Minardi. Not all of them were of the, the highest calibre, but, but a great deal of them were really good drivers that were picked absolutely on merit for, for their abilities, which is always something to be admired in my view. And Kevin, you get to critique this list. Are you looking forward to this one? Yeah, it's a different role, isn't it? With the Arrows one, Jake Boxall legs stepped up uh, and, and James is what I would call the other king of mediocrity in the sense <laughs> that he also enjoys a hopeless F1 car. The lower level teams are actually harder to do the lists on. Um, so I needed some help. So um, yeah, so for this series, we've we've divvied it up a little bit. I've done three and we've had a guest list writer for the other three. And um, yeah, I thought Minardi, uh, Minardi, Minardi seems, it's, it's a nice, it is a, is a feel good team. It's a nice little, nice little story. Lots and lots of starts. Um, so yeah, quite looking forward to this one. It'd be a little bit different, but as you say, there'll be some big names further up the list. Uh, yeah, some F1 winners, uh, world champion in there. And, and I think a name as well that, you know, any fan of Formula One for a while will think of one particular name as synonymous with Minardi. But uh, we'll see where that person ranks on the list. But let's get into it then. And we are going to have a few drivers here that are on your list, James, that didn't actually score points. But there's a good reason uh, for that, because, you know, they made the top 10, but they weren't actually point scorers. But we are talking about Minardi here. Let's start at number 10 with Justin Wilson. Now, Justin Wilson started uh, for 11 times with Minardi, didn't score any points. Best finish was 11th in the 2003 Spanish Grand Prix. Best grid position was 18th. Now, why did you put Justin Wilson in the list? And as Kev has often said in these features, uh, number 10 is very hard because it's who you leave out as well. Who's it? You know, 11 and 12. But talk us through your reasoning for Justin Wilson. Quite, yeah. I mean, Justin Wilson, he's here primarily because of his opening lap records. Um, He was absolutely fantastic on opening laps at making up positions. Um, And although he was out-qualified over the course of his time at the team by Jos Verstappen, um, actually, Paul Stoddart, was quoted as saying that that was the best lineup that Minardi had ever had. Um, Jos Verstappen, a, 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 you could argue, a journeyman Formula One driver, but when he arrived in on the scene in 1994, it was off the back of blitzing the German F3 Championship. We'll go on to talk about Jos Verstappen a little bit more later, but you know, it, it was no shame that the Wilson was outqualified by Verstappen, who clocked up 100 Grand Prix, his 100th Grand Prix start during his his time at the team. Um, just a sensational opening lap driver and Australia and Malaysia and the Spanish Grand Prix he made up nine positions a remarkable you know you you could say that uh, starting at the back of the grid you can, you can only go one way but Wilson was one of those drivers that could could spot an opportunity and, and really take it and, and put a Minardi in, in positions it, it wasn't supposed to be in and um, what was the machinery like that he had to work with in his era at Minardi? I mean, the 2003 car was pretty much a, a, an updated version of the 2001 car, a customer Ford engine, so so really not at the zenith of, of the team's competitiveness. You have to look towards the um, sort of the early 90s and, and uh, the late 80s for that. It, it had sort of, it slid down towards the back of the grid from which it wouldn't really recover. It had, had been well underway for a few years by that point. Um, but Wilson did enough during his time to... Uh, to earn a, a mid-season promotion to Jaguar in place of Antonio Pizzonia. And he actually gained the most opening lap positions of anyone throughout the whole season, despite spending you know much of the second half of the season in 
sort of mid-grid machinery that meant you know that the opportunities to uh, to, to pick off some of the the less attentive drivers, shall we say, were were reduced. Um, Wilson didn't score any points, and this is probably a, a point that we should mention at the start: is um, there are there are drivers who scored points for Minardi who we haven't included on this list. That's because a lot of the decision making for who made the ten was was based one on on qualifying, but also what they did relative to their teammates. So a driver who scored points in in a one-off sort of freak race, um, but who the vast majority of the time was was out qualified by their teammate, or in some cases didn't even make the cut for the race. I don't think can really be considered as as part of the ten strongest on the basis of of one result. While Wilson didn't score points, you can consistently say that his his race craft was really good and the benchmark that was his teammate in Verstappen was a was a very good one so although he 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 uh he was only ahead of the Dutchman four times out of seven and again it's a, it's a small sample size but mm. I, I don't think you can say that he he could have done a, a whole lot more with with the machinery that he had it wasn't like he was you know drastically slower or anything and for any of our listeners that haven't heard any of the previous of the you know in either mini series we've done you know this this is worth reminding uh, we are judging the drivers on their time they spent with this team and because in case you think well hang on he went on to have a you know a fabulous career and obviously tragically in Indy but a great driver we always judge them on the time they spent with the team you know apologies if you knew that already Kev your thoughts on putting Justin Wilson in tenth. Yeah, I, I think I agree with that. I think it's probably also worth mentioning that he was taller than you'd really ideally want as a Formula One driver. So he always had that, you know, getting him to, to be in the car. And his head always looked much closer to the top of the uh, the air intake as well. I always thought that was uh, surely created some kind of uh, aerodynamic disturbance that wasn't ideal. And of course, he was a lot less experienced uh, than Verstappen as well when they were together. So no, I absolutely think he did a good job. I guess the name, I guess we're going to talk about who who didn't make the list like in, in this 10 slot. I think the only person who might can really be considered high. Well, there's two names I thought of. One was Luis Perez-Sala, but then when you look at how he compared to Pierre-Luigi Martini, he was completely and utterly blown apart. So I think he was a point scorer, but I think it's fair enough not to have him in the list. But I think perhaps more hard done by is, is perhaps Pedro Lamy, who, um, who, is a be- who was a better driver, is a better driver than he probably gets credit for these days. But as with these, always with these lists, if you're putting someone in, who do you take out? And looking down the list, I'm not convinced that there's anyone that I would remove to get Pedro in there. But I think he deserves a sort of honourable mention, really. Absolutely. And and with Pedro Lamy, the, the main reason that I didn't include him was because of someone that we'll talk about later during their uh, team head-to-head, um, where Lamy did impress against one of his Minardi teammates, but then was was beaten quite comprehensively by the other. So we'll, we'll go on to talk about that a little bit later. But absolutely, Lamy is the the record equal record holder of the number of Nurburgring twenty four hour wins with with five. So um, a very distinguished driver who just didn't show that quite in in Formula One. All right, let's move on. In ninth place, you put Alessandro Nanini. Started thirty times, didn't score any points, did finish eleventh. Uh, best starting position on the grid was 13th. What's your reasoning for him, James? Nanini is pretty much setting the mould for what the archetypal Minardi driver should be because um, he was a driver who was was young, took a punt on by um, Giancarlo Minardi, the team owner. In in this instance, they'd actually worked together before in in Formula 2 and Nanini arrives in Formula 1 for 1986, which is the second year for for Minardi in 
in Grand Prix racing as they step up to a, a two-car team. Woefully unreliable Moderni V6 engine turbos really kind of stymied what Nanini could do. But actually, when you look at what he did in comparison with Andrea De Cesaris, who is his significantly more experienced teammate, Nanini really doesn't disgrace himself at all. And it's it's that that I think brings him onto the list because the the, the, the sheer unreliability means that actually judging his race results is, is really rather difficult. But um, yeah, he was he was uh, eight all against De Cesaris, which is, is no mean feat. And he out-qualified De Cesaris several times in a row later in the season as he, as he sort of gained experience, um, including occasionally in the older 85 uh, updated car when De Cesaris usually had the pick of the, the newer 86 car. Then in 87, he wiped the floor with Adrian Campos and was never headed in qualifying. So um, he got his promotion to, to Benetton off the back of that and became an F1 winner. So on that basis, you can say that that's what Minardi was all about. It was giving opportunities to, to drivers that could show what they could do in, in lesser machinery uh, and mark them out as, as future stars. And that can, that teammate comparison is a useful one because it's same you know most of the time identical ma- machinery um, as best as they can get and so you can judge them against other drivers as well when putting these lists together. Kev, what are your thoughts? I, I've been humming and hawing about whether this this driver should actually be one spot higher. One of the things I was looking at is if you look at Nanini versus the next person on our list, he's got a better teammate record uh, in qualifying. Um, so you you could use that to swap them round, but then the the next person on our list has one particular moment that just from a sympathy point of view means he should probably get a bonus extra position. Um, so I'm I'm, I'm pretty <laughs> pretty comfortable with uh, with Nanini, but I just want to pull out one of the stats that that James did for his piece. Bear in mind that he started thirty World Championship races for Nardi. He only saw the finish four times. Now, uh, I think from a, for a modern a modern F1 fan that perhaps wasn't around in the explosive turbo days of cars littering the track on either side of the road, that seems that seems astonishing. But I think even by the standards of the 1980s, four finishes out of 30. I mean, cool. You'd, you'd have to have some uh, you'd have to have some real patience with your team. I think so. Yeah, no, I'm happy with uh, happy with Nanini in ninth. I think you could swap you could swap nine and eight around and around, and keep going. But um, happy with the the positions that they're in. Well, let's get into number eight. It's Luca Badoa. Started a couple more races, thirty two starts. Again, no points, uh, but did finish eighth. So not far off the points. Also uh, started up in twelfth. James, do you, do you buy that argument that uh, Luca Padoa and Alessandro Nanini sort of a little bit interchangeable, or do you think he's uh, got a, a good shout of being one? What well, you must do because you put the list together one place higher. I mean, you you, you Kev's absolutely right in terms of his qualifying record. Nanini's is, is better than Padoa's. Padoa had two spells at Minardi. Um, he, he joined in 1995. He'd spent a year on the sidelines in '94 as a, as a test driver, and so kind of was shaking off a bit of rust when he when he started the season alongside um, Pierluigi Martini, who um, we'll go on to talk about much more later on. Um, didn't embarrass himself at all against Martini and, as you mentioned, had some good qualifying results early in the year. Uh, and I discovered in, in researching for this that he actually 
crossed the line seventh at the 95 Canadian Grand Prix, but the result was taken back a lap because there was a track invasion following Jean Lacy's win in the number 27 Ferrari, of course, the, the Gilles Villeneuve number um, on, on the circuit named after him. So it was deemed that uh, that was unfair that he'd overtaken Mikasalo amidst um, crowds of fans teaming onto the track. So he, he was docked to place. But uh, yeah, he, he then joins 40 for a hopeless season and then tests for... Ferrari for a couple of years before returning to the grid in 99. He's up against Marc Genet and he does he does well against uh, Genet. I forgot to mention actually that he was uh, he was out qualified by Pedro Lamy towards the end of 95 when Martini steps out and, and Lamy makes his F1 comeback after his leg breaking test crash at Silverstone for Lotus in 94. Badawa, yeah, he, he's so unfortunate. I mean the, the, the 1999 European Grand Prix is one that, that a lot of people kind of pick out as, as a race of what could have been for, for multiple different drivers um, but for Badoa who, who never scored a point in, in his Formula 1 career and it's kind of tainted really by his um, substitute appearances for Felipe Massa in 2009 after a decade without racing but he'd be painted in such a different light had his gearbox not failed when he was running fourth um, in the closing laps at the Nürburgring just as Kev mentioned earlier you know terribly unfortunate and you know he was he broke down in tears by the side of his car at the at the roadside so so Badoa does sort of on on sympathy deserve a a place in the in this top 10 because fourth place would have been equaling the the very best result ever attained by Minardi Uh, and to add insult to injury uh, his teammate Marc Genet stole in and, and nabbed the only point of the year for the team in sixth place which was just a, a double hammer blow really so so Badawa not the best uh, record against his teammates in qualifying but um, yeah a, a good strong racer who arguably probably shouldn't have been in the Minardi for that European Grand Prix because perhaps you could argue he should have been the one that Ferrari chose instead of Mikasalo when, when Schumacher had his late breaking shunt at Silverstone and then you know Badawa racing in his prime, um, would he have done a better job than Salo? It's it's difficult to say, but he certainly wouldn't have ended his F1 career without a single point to his name and a, a subject of mockery, really. Yeah, I think that um, I know we try and be more objective with these lists, um, but I, I, it's hard to get away from the emotional thing with Badeau, not just because of that, you know, the, ha- the, the sort of helmet in the hand sort of crying there by the side of the road. Uh, you know, I think everyone... You think you have to be pretty cold-hearted not to have felt for him at that at that moment, um, but also because I, I'm, I'm pleased that he's in the list because I think he's kind of remembered for those couple of Ferrari outings in 2009, which is incredibly unfair, really. I mean, he's, I think he probably will hold the record for the worst Autosport driver rating ever. I think one of those races he got half a point, which I can't see Matthew or Alex Kalinorkas being that harsh on any of the current grid um, to, to, to give such something so low. But that car was actually very very difficult to drive. Kimi Reich and Felipe Massa struggled with it at various points during that year. And Fisichella didn't exactly set the world alight when he got in it either. So I, I think I think that, that Badoa probably is a bit hard done by there. So yeah, no, very, very happy to see him uh, see him on the list at eight. I think that's fair enough. Well, look at you two giving the sympathy vote to the Italian that was denied. I know, it's uh, terrible. And, isn't well, it? you know, the emotions are coming into it. Let's move on and let's get into uh, place number seven now. Giancarlo Fisichella started only eight times and scored no points, but uh, finished well in eighth as his highest position. And at the same race, Canadian Grand Prix in 96, uh, started 16th, his best grid 
position. So, uh, less of an outing for the team, but making a higher ranking, James. Giancarlo Fisichella in seventh. He's a, he's a rookie in 96 when he gets his opportunity with Minardi. Um, he won the Italian F3 Championship in 94, which kind of marked him out as a, as a future star. But he'd been racing touring cars for Alfa Romeo in 95, and he was actually slated to carry on doing touring cars for 96, and ended up uh, swapping between the two. So, a pretty good effort, really, given that he um, and, and also he he, yeah, he was swapping backwards and forwards between two very different types of cars as a rookie, and he wasn't really supposed to be doing the '96 season. He was a late call-up to replace Taki Inui, who um, didn't set the world alight. It's fair to say, um, with with footwork in '95, um, Inui's money fell through, so Fisichella was was given the, the chance. And at short notice, he came in alongside Lamy, who had done better than Badoa in um, the end of '95. And Fisichella confidently, you know, had had Lamy covered in their eight races together. He beat him 6-2 in qualifying, which is a 75%, um, you know, record, which is one of the best totals um, that, that in a head-to-head that, that any Minardi driver had. Um, yeah, I mean, he, he didn't do all, all, all the races, obviously. He, he stepped out for the two South American races so that Tarso Marquez could have a go. Uh, and he didn't see out the season either when he when he got back in the car because uh, Giovanni Lavaggi, who was a, uh, you could arguably say, Formula One's last uh, gentleman driver, um, saw, out the, saw out the season in, in his car. But he, he did a really good job given his lack of experience. And, and I think, you know, it's that factor and, and jumping in between two different cars and going up against a, a teammate in in Lamy who arguably should have won the the 1993 Italian uh, International Formula 3000 Championship. A, a really good driver, as we've already covered. Um, that that means Fesser Keller earns his spot in the list. Yeah, Lamy, a good driver, a great uh, racing driver over the course of his career. Not the most illustrious Formula One career, I guess you could say. But Kevin, what do you think, Giancarlo Fisichella in seventh? What's your analysis of that? Yeah, and I fear that I'm, I, I promise that I will disagree with some of these choices further on in the list because we don't want to just go through all the ten and agree. But I, I, I think Fizzy's fairly firmly in here because I think his performances in a handful of races probably do just about get him ahead of the three we've discussed already but I, I think from that fewer starts you can't really push any higher up the list so I, I think he's probably pretty rooted now I mean remember I think Jensen Button described him as the best driver of rubbish car that he'd ever seen I think Fisichella is an absolute he's almost my archetypal go-to driver when you're talking about someone who was brilliant when the equipment was poor and got progressively worse the more competitive his car was so when it was <laughs> when, when he had a Grand Prix or championship winning car in the Renault he was absolutely and completely obliterated by Fernando Alonso who admittedly is a very tough benchmark as many drivers have found since um, but also he'd need to get radio calls to sort of wake him up in the middle of the race and he'd suddenly go three quarters of a second a lap quicker so I've always thought he'd be an absolutely British brilliant British hill climb champion sort of championship driver Fisichella uh, which you won't hear that said in many podcasts I'm sure but no I think um, from a Minardi point of view I think he's I think he's, he's spot on and uh, yeah he did a very good job with very little experience. He's another one of those drivers that goes on to have a very long you know career as, as Kev's kind of said there and in, in the Nanini mould sort of thing as you know underlining what Minardi was all about as well. It's a very niche list, isn't it? Oh. Best drives of rubbish cars that were then rubbishing good cars, because then you'd have to have people like, you know, Heinz Harold Frentzen, he'd be in there as well. You could have Frentzen Fisichella face off, couldn't you, in that sort of list. 
Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. As we always say, that's a podcast for another day. Now, though, I know uh, like two drivers that, Kev, you are going to disagree with on James here. So we'll we'll look at them together. Now, James, you put Jos Verstappen in sixth place. He started 16 times for Minardi, didn't score any points, did finish ninth in the 2003 Canadian Grand Prix, also had his best grid start for the same race. He's in sixth, and you put Jano Trulli in fifth. Now, he started fewer races for Minardi, only six starts, also a non-point scorer, finished in uh, ninth grid position, 17th, back at uh, Australia in 1997. So I know, Kev, you might disagree with these two. We'll look at them together. But, James, argue your case for why you put Jos in sixth and Jano in fifth. Verstappen, we, we sort of covered that he, he went up against Justin Wilson, who was a, a very strong rookie, and, and did pretty well. Verstappen had had a year out of, of Formula One after he was sort of unceremoniously dumped by Arrows at the end of 2001. Uh, and he, you know, wanted to prove that he still had something to, to show uh, Formula One. And, and I think he did that because in machinery that was never going to be anything other than the, the tail ender, um, he didn't let his motivation get down um, out qualified Wilson and, and his record arguably could have been better had he not had a few um, sort of mechanical problems that, that maybe uh, skew the, the the qualifying head-to-head a little bit more also when Wilson comes up to Jaguar Nicholas Chiesa comes in to replace him for the rest of the season Verstappen wipes the floor with him um, he has his, his his best moment is is unquestionably at Manny Core, um, in a moment that I remember fondly, but the history books arguably don't because it really doesn't matter in the wider context of the race weekend, where at the time the qualifying format was sort of a, a one shot qualifying where it was split into into two sessions. Um, the first session would determine the running order for the uh, the. The, the qualifying session that actually set the grid. So the first session was was set by championship order, and at Manicor it rained. Um, so all the guys that were high up in the championship were struggling around on a wet track that was gradually drying. So the guys at the bottom end of the standings had had more of a chance to to impress. Um, Verstappen was ahead of Wilson in the standings, so in theory had worse um, conditions, but but beat him there. And that is the only time in F1 history that a Minardi ever topped a, um, a session. So. Verstappen has that uh, that glory moment to his name, which ultimately counted for for not very much. Um, like Wilson, he was also caught out in the turn three um, river at, at Interlagos, which is the the big what if moment really of his time at the team, um, because he he'd been brimmed with, with 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 fuel before the start and had the race kind of run as it did, being red flagged before the end after Alonso and Weber uh, shunted. Um, there's a very good chance that a Minardi would have been on the podium. And when he shunted, Verstappen was actually ahead of 
eventual winner Fisichella. So um, there's a there's a big question of, of what if there. The reason I've put him behind Yano Trulli, despite uh, Trulli doing so many fewer races, not even um, a full season, like six races. So and you still put him ahead. Yeah, he 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 entered seven. He didn't start one because he had a uh, a problem before the before the start of the race at Imola. Um, Trulli was was a rookie coming in. Um, he'd won. Uh, the German F3 Championship the year before, against a, a good teammate Inukia Katayama, who was who was very experienced, truly just absolutely wipes the floor with him. He he is only beaten once in qualifying um, by by Katayama, and that's on his debut. But the reason I, I've really put truly above Verstappen is because of the number of other teams that 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 truly habitually managed to to beat in qualifying and put between himself and and Katayama. So. The, the 97 Minardi was the slowest car of the year on, on Super Times, which is our sort of metric for, for assessing how fast a car is versus the, the overall pace. Uh, once we take out the Lola, which only attempted to qualify for Australia. Um, but Trulli was never on the back row of the grid. He always outqualified someone else from another team. Um, Jan Magnussen Stewart, he, he beat five times. Verstappen. In a Tyrrell, he beat four times. Mikasalo um, three times. Pedro Diniz, Shinji Nakano in, in an Arrows and a Prost, respectively. And he also beat um, Nicola Larini's Sauber in, in Brazil. Um, so he was he did really well in, in the machinery that he had available to him relative to his team at Katayama. When he got promoted to Prost midway through the season when Olivier Panis broke his legs and, and they needed a, a new driver, Tarso Marquez, who'd had a couple of outings in '96. In came back in and he was outqualified by Katayama pretty comprehensively which suggests that Trulli was really getting the most out of out of his machinery um, and as we know from from later years Trulli was a, a real qualifying demon um, that's that's really the, the the environment he thrived in um, and so on that basis for the, the the lack of experience relative to Verstappen and the, the faster cars that he outpaced in, in qualifying is, is my reason for putting him there despite the right. admittedly small sample size. So his one lap pace gets him above Verstappen in your list. But Kev, I know you don't see it quite the same. No, there are a couple of reasons why I would swap them round. I, I don't have a problem with uh, James's approach to using qualifying a bit more for this than some of the other lists. I think that makes sense given the unreliability in the sort of midfield to back end in the races. So it's, I think it's a good way of doing it. But I think the two reasons I would uh, I would swap them around. One is the sample size. I think that six races versus a, a whole season slogging your guts out for a back end team has got to be has got to be worth something. But also about the nature of that qualifying, I, I would argue actually Yarno truly is one. Of the great one of the best qualifiers in F1 history like his his qualifying efforts compared to his race I think um yeah were were, were incredible um but I think if you're a, if you're a midfield to back end team what do you want do you want a sort of star qualifier do you want someone who's going to grind out a result on the you know when the opportunity comes along and I think that if if you're a big team like Toyota and you you haven't haven't achieved as much as you should have done and you want to get a front row to say yeah look we're quick then Trudy's great stick him in and stick it on the front row and you look good and yep, Toyota are quick and then he, if he falls back to sixth in the race, it doesn't matter. I think if you're a back-end team that you might get one opportunity a year to score a point, then I, I think I'd personally rather have the battling Jos Verstappen in my car than Trudy. I don't think Trudy was as bad in the races as people remember, actually. I think it was but I think it was because he kept qualifying so far ahead of where the cars should be, really. So I completely agree with his qualifying effort. But if I'm boss of Minardi... Uh, I'm 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 picking Yoss over 
over Yarno, I think, for, for, for trying to get that result that I really need. Yeah, before we had the DRS train, we had the Truly train, and that's an unfair way of remembering a very, very good driver. <laughs> he was better driver. than that, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but still, right, let's move on. And in fourth place, James, you put Christian Fittipaldi. Now, had a decent number of starts for Minardi, started 24 times, and we get into the point scorers now. So now you can start to argue on world championship points about why the driver is where they are as we head towards the top three. Um Score, uh, scored six points. He finished fourth as his best result and started 12th as his best grid position. Christian Fittipaldi, James. Yes, I mean, Fittipaldi is is actually the, the highest placed driver on the list who has a, a sort of, if you could use the term, iffy qualifying record. I mean, for the, for the lower... For the lower segments, I've I really tried to look at who definitely had the better of their teammates in qualifying, and 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 use that as as the basis. But Fittipaldi, you you just can't overlook his his race drives. So he only has a fifty one point nine percent teammate record in the head to heads. Um, now that's arguably skewed by in his rookie year in ninety two. Um, he had a big shunt in qualifying at Manly Corps and, and hurt his neck. So he missed a few races, came back arguably too soon and didn't qualify for a few and then only sort of scraped onto the back end of the grid. Um, so a lot of his 92 season was kind of blighted by that, really. Uh, he was up against a, a very capable teammate in, in Johnny Morbidelli, who was another one that I considered to make the, the top 10 um, in, in the list. Um but actually, towards the end of that season, he comes on really strong. And in, in Suzuka, he f- battles with John Alesi's Ferrari all the way to the to the flag and, and ends up finishing sixth. Um, and then come 93, he starts that in a, in a really good um, vein of form. So he, he was never headed by his teammate um, Fabrizio Barbazza in qualifying. Um, had, a, had a non-stop run to fourth in the Kyle Army season opener. Um, and and he qualified 13th there, which was the highest a Minardi would 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 figure on the grid all year. Um, and he took fifth uh, at, at Monaco, where he he beat Martin Brundle's Ligier as as well to to that finish. Um, he he was beaten by Martini, who has so many spells at Minardi. We'll, we'll go on to talk about it a bit later when when he returned towards the end of '93. And you could argue that his his 93 season is kind of uh, best remembered for their sort of coming together on the approach to the finish line uh, at Monza where uh, Fittipaldi moves out to, to pass Martini and, and he sort of ever so slightly jinks to the, to the right and, and Fittipaldi ends up somersaulting over his over his car uh, and very fortunately lands back on, on all four wheels again. Um, the, the pictures of, of that are just astounding to, to, to watch. Um, and he doesn't see out the the '93 season because Jean-Marc Gounon, who another driver who impressed in in F3000. Oh, Fittipaldi was the 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 '91 F3000 champion. Um, Justin Wilson was the 2001 champion, drove for Minardi. So uh, Badoa was the '92 champion. So they they did have a record of sort of promoting um, young talents, as as we've mentioned multiple times. Um, but Gounon had backing from the the French uh, government. Uh, who wanted to promote French sports people? So um, that took precedence over over Fittipaldi towards the end of the season, and, and he was he was shuffled out. But I think the basis of his 
race performances and also his development where he started in 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 92 towards the end of his time in in Minardi a a really reliable point scorer who um yeah you know he he scored six points for the team which I think is is the second highest of anybody else uh in in for Minardi and let's not forget he was driving for the team at a period when they weren't at their competitive zenith that had arguably kind of passed at the end of 91 so I think Fittipaldi did a really good job as Minardi was sort of beginning its descent towards the back end of the grid um, that, that it couldn't really recover from. And he'd go on to get that footwork drive afterwards and he'd score half of his Formula One World Championship points that he'd score in his entire career with Minardi. So again, if you're just working it on World Championship points and that progression as well, as you can say, from first season to, to second season, when we look forward to the, the top three, which we'll get to, and then you look at the ones behind him, the Trulies and Verstappens that weren't point scorers, he, he sort of seems to suit a natural fourth place because you can't argue him against the top three that we're going to get to but also he's so much better than the names that we've, we've done so far yeah he's he, he can't possibly get into the top three debate i mean if you were talking about the best drivers who had ever sat in a minardi which is not the list that these are then i think i'd have him ninth or tenth in this list i think they were pretty much everyone we talked about so far i'd i'd have on on sort of basic ability or certainly in f1 I'd put them ahead of Fittipaldi. But I think we're talking about their time at Minardi, their impact at Minardi. Then, yeah, I completely agree. Um, you know, he's got he's got you know he's got the point scores, hasn't he? Um, you know, he's got he's got a decent record. Um, he he's got the longevity. You know, he's there for a bit longer than you know a lot of the people we've talked about so far. I've just got a sort of handful of starts for maybe one season. He's got longer than that. Um, you know, scored a higher position, um, but I don't think he was outstanding in a way that the the top three that we'll we'll come talk about. So I think he's an absolute nailed on, just misses the uh, the medal placings driver. <laughs> nailed on fourth, uh, faint praise. But how much of his performance uh, and how many of those points, because obviously we're giving a lot of waiting now to he was a point scorer for Minardi. How much of that, uh, James, was on on merit and, and, and talent versus you know, drivers can pick up points when you know the eight drivers ahead of them all decide to trip over each other and you pick your way through the mess so so how much of that was on you know genuine pace and he deserves to be there or, or how much of that was kind of fortune or luck no i think with, with Fittipaldi you, you can say that it was it was earned i mean the the Kyle Army race was was you know as i said a, a non-stop race where you know that requires a lot of time management um of course Minardi is is going to always benefit from attrition to to have to score points. It, it's it's very rarely, uh, unless we're talking about Pierluigi Martini's time at the team, going to be factoring at, at the front uh, on on sheer pace. But um, his actual his race drives were really good, and I haven't listened to the the Arrows podcast yet. But I, I hope that when Fittipaldi was discussed, mention was made to him losing a points finish or a potential podium even at Monaco. Um, in 1994, I mean that was a track that he always went really well at. Uh, and a couple of years ago, when I uh, when Fittipaldi retired after a very long and distinguished career, he went on to race uh, in 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 Champ Car and 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 sports cars, won three Daytona 24 Hours. Had a long chat with him about his career, and it was really fascinating, sort of hearing him reflect on on his on his time in Formula One. Um, you know, he he 
that that drive at Suzuka in 92 after several races of you know being a, a subpar version of himself while his neck wasn't at full strength to press Alesi and score the, the team's only point of the year and, and Suzuka by the way is, is obviously not a not a walk in the park track that's a that's a real driver circuit where you know you look to, to circuits like that where drivers are doing well and say that that's proper um and we we Kev briefly mentioned there about the the very best drivers that have ever sat in a Minardi. You could make mention there perhaps of, of Alex Zanardi, who was the driver that subbed for Fittipaldi in '92, but he didn't do an awful lot in in his time in in, in the in the '92 Minardi either. Um, which maybe you could argue was down to lack of race fitness because he'd been out of the the car for a little while. But um, yeah, at, at, a, at a point when Minardi wasn't at it at its peak. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18+. plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Fittipaldi was a very dependable driver that that led the team pretty well. Now, I've been wondering whether to do drivers two and three together, because I know that there's going to be an argument between them. But if we do that, then it definitely gives away the number one, because we're... I don't know what to do. Look, let's just do number driver number three, because we've mentioned one particular driver who is synonymous with Minardi let's face it but we'll 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 keep the listeners hanging on just a little bit more and in third place you have put Mark Webber now he started 17 times he scored two points uh, best finish uh, in 2002 with the Australian Grand Prix uh, qualified well there as well and of course there's the Australian connection as well so you put Mark Webber in in third place and now we start to get to the to the you know three drivers that our listeners will know connected with Minardi so James Mark Webber only in third yes so Webber made his debut uh, Formula One debut with Minardi in 2002 and he couldn't have dreamt that it would have gone as as well as it did where you have a, a multi-car pile-up at the first corner in front of him um, that gives him a, a chance at, at points. But what really, you know, you can say, oh, that's just down to luck. But that ignores the fact that he had to hold off Mikasalo, who was a, a very experienced Formula 1 driver, to, to keep on to keep hold of that fifth place. Uh, Salo eventually spins trying to, to pass him. And the fact that, Toyota Salo's team would only score two sixth places and Minardi's only points were 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 that fifth place it meant that Minardi stayed ahead of Toyota in the well constructor standing so that was an absolutely enormously significant result for for that season um Weber as well he he has a 100% qualifying record he's up against Alex Young who was a uh, a Malaysian driver who was was shall we say not of the the same level really Weber had been a a, a consistent winner in um, FIA GTs with Mercedes he'd been right at the front in Formula 3000 he'd been a Benetton test driver so he was really well prepared and he absolutely made the best use of, of his car which was an admittedly uh, you know a, a, a tail end car but he, he was able to punch against you know the 
the, the Arrows cars that were sort of running, running out of money uh, and he regularly uh, sort of embarrassed the Jaguars as well out-qualified Pedro De La Rosa and, and Eddie Irvine uh, on several occasions his zenith was, was arguably Manicure where he was running ahead of both Toyotas in the race before they retired and, and De La Rosa's Jaguar um, finished eighth so so no points back then because points only went down to sixth but in his autobiography he ranks that as a, a drive that was equally as good as Melbourne um, he also had Anthony Davidson as a teammate for two races um, Anthony Davidson probably wasn't at his sort of peak then should we say he kind of struggled with the, the physicality of the car and, and couldn't get near Weber either um, so I think Weber is, is is absolutely deserving of a of a high place on the list. But the reason I, I've put him behind the person who's in second was just because of the sheer frequency with which the the second place driver was able to to beat faster cars. And actually, the the fact that that happened sort of even quite late into the season when Minardi would normally regress to a um, a weaker position. Um, the the second place driver could, could do that more frequently, but you could say oh, yeah. Weber actually did get to stand on a podium, which was slightly mm. unorthodox. Paul Stoddart sort of um, <laughs> was mates with the, uh, the the promoters of the Australian Grand Prix and, and got Weber up on the podium to wave to all the fans. So that's the only time that ever happened in Formula One history. <laughs> uh, yeah, and you know, and a clean sweep. The only driver on this list with a clean sweep, a hundred percent record in qualifying over his uh, his teammates. And, uh, and you know, in terms of Formula One drivers these days, you know, whether it's drivers that have come through GP2 or F2 to start Formula One at a pretty young age, Mark Webber was a little bit older when he came into Formula One. Third on this list, what do you reckon? Yeah, so I, uh, it's really tight between second and third. And I think it's easy to think that the second place person probably was more relentless and good, more consistent than Minardi, but that's really from a position of hindsight where we just know that his career is like that. Um, I think if you look at some of the stats and, th- and criteria that, that James has pulled out, they're kind of, they're, you know, they've got almost exactly the same average qualifying position. They both completely destroyed their teammates. The only reason that number two hasn't got 100% is for reasons outside of his control. Um, so, yeah, it's really nip and tuck between the two of them. You can argue them either way, but for me, I just can't get the image of Mark Webber and Paul Stoddart on the podium in Melbourne out of my head. Like, to me, that is, that's almost Webber's greatest moment, I think, his first race. <laughs> um, and the, and it, but, but also, if you're a Minardi fan, that's a day you're going to remember. Like, that, that day, first of all, the fifth was amazing anyway, but just the, you know, the enthusiasm and the cheering, everything around that, like, that's, that's kind of embodies what Minardi's about, right? They're one, they're going to get one moment every, or they used to get one moment every two, three, four years, where they just you just they get that point or they get a couple of points that you really were rooting for them to get. And okay, completely circumstances, I'm sure the second person on this list would have done exactly the same thing in that position. But the, the point is it was Mark Webber who was there and who got that result. And I think it's just such a big it was such a big day for Minardi and Minardi fans. Uh, and it's so equal across the rest of the um, yeah the rest of the criteria we're looking at. I would nudge him into second place, even though if I was doing a list of great Grand Prix drivers, there's absolutely no way I would be arguing to swap these two around. <laughs> well, let, let's do num- let's do our second place now, which are going to give away our first place. But let's argue amongst between two and three. In second place, James, you put Fernando Alonso. He didn't score any points for Minardi. He started seventeen times. 
yet you put him above Mark Webber. So give us your reasoning for that. And I think Kev might have an argument against it. Well, I mean, you know, Alonso, like Webber, he's a rookie when he comes into Formula One. But Minardi is in such a worse position at the start of 2001 than it is in 2002. So it's just been taken over by Paul Stoddart, who's kind of rescued the team from certain collapse because it was owned by um, Gabriele Rumi, who was a... a, a he, he owned the Fond Metal Formula One team and the, the Fond Metal Wheels company, but he had um, he had a terminal illness, so he was you know kind of desperate to offload this asset. Um, there'd already been one sale to the PSN um, telecommunications company that had, had fallen through, um, so Stoddart sort of picks it up and. You know, this story is fairly well known that, you know, the mechanics worked around the clock to, to get cars built up and, and shipped out to Australia. Um, and poor old Tasso Marquez, we've mentioned him a couple of times. He comes back in to drive the, the second car uh, and it's kind of a bit of a, a bit of a brick, really, of whatever pieces they can um, pull together. Um, so it's, it's fair to say that Alonso probably did have the better of the two cars. But my word, does he make the best of it? Um I found a quote from the um, the San Marino Grand Prix report issue where uh, the, the designer Gustav Brunner uh, is commenting on Alonso um, qualifying 18th ahead of both the Benetton drivers, um, Button and Fisichella, and he was saying, well, our car shouldn't be able to do that lap time, so I can only assume that it's from the driver. Um, you know, with, with the worst car in the field, he he frequently embarrasses faster machinery. So he beat both Benetton's Limola, Barcelona and the A1 ring, um, where he was 18th each time. He also outqualified both arrows, so Verstappen and, and Enrico Bernoldi in, in Monaco, Hungary and Suzuka. Um, he'd often beat a Jaguar and a Prost as well. Um, at the US Grand Prix, he was, he was 17th, and that's you know right towards the end of the season. Um and he outqualified Jacques Villeneuve's BAR, which I just found find absolutely astounding. Um, as Kev sort of mentioned, you know, he, he only lost his 100% qualifying record to sort of factors outside of his control. So there was a, a gearbox problem in Malaysia and in Canada. He, he was ahead of uh, Marquez, but he had his times disallowed because of a front wing that was below the, the regulation height. Alex Young comes in for the final three races um, to bring a bit of money to the team and, and Alonso blows him away. But Alonso also has to his favour, you know, really strong race drives. And the one that everyone sort of points out is Suzuka, where he beat um, Olivier Panis's BAR, both Arrows, and Heinz Harald Frentzen's Prost. And he finished seventh. Uh, he finished eleventh at, at Suzuka. Um, just a, a really strong drive that people at the time may may not have noticed, but just summed up Alonso's you know relentless pursuit of any position available that that you still see now driving in some you know, <laughs> machines that aren't quite at, at, at the at the forefront scrapping for any position it doesn't matter what it is Kev? Uh, well I mean I, I'm just gonna kind of argue against myself really to agree with James but it <laughs> Alonso's entire career really is about being a level he's one of those rare drivers that can make a car be a level higher than it actually is and I don't mean it can go faster than it can because that's impossible but you know in the worst car in the field he managed to get it into the midfield when he was at McLaren they had a midfield car he dragged it into the points when he was when he was at Ferrari it should have been a podium finisher and he managed to almost win a couple of world championships with it uh, and so thank thank goodness for everyone else that he was never in a dominant F1 car you know Alonso never had a Red Bull that Vettel had or the Mercedes that Lewis Hamilton had and that's really the difference between 
you know him having two world championships, Lewis having seven, and uh, as, you know as we talk now, and and Sebastian Vettel having four. I think he's absolutely right up there. I think I'd have him ahead of ahead of Vettel in terms of his career. A relentless performance. Um, yeah, I completely agree with everything that that James has said. I, I just think it. If we're just looking through the sort of the Minardi magnifying glass, if you like, um, it, it comes down to the weighting of, of Melbourne. And probably, if I was making this list, if I'd been writing this list, I probably would have had Alonso at number two as well. But as I'm being the devil's advocate person, I, I keep thinking about Australia 2002. So, uh, so yeah. So Weber at second and Alonso third. But if you're doing a list of the best drivers you'd ever sat in a Minardi, then Alonso is number one, isn't he? Yeah. Well, let's get on to number one then. A name synonymous with the team. Pierluigi Martini started 92 times for Minardi. (laughs) Scored 16 points. Best finish fourth. Uh, He would start second on the grid. He was a front row starter at 1990 in Phoenix. And when uh, we talked to him for a 2006 Autosports uh, piece, a a series that we called the Master's Degree, not short of uh, any uh, confidence or assessment of his own standing, he said, after 20 years, I'm the driver that drove for Minardi. Nobody remembers Alonso or Fisichella. Everyone remembers Martini. (laughs) So, uh, a few people remember a chap called Alonso. Not sure short of, uh, of a bit of confidence there, but number one on your list, James. I mean, this is probably the only list that we'll ever make where Pierluigi Martini comes top, but there there is just no question about it. By every metric, he's the, the most important driver in Minardi's history because, you know, you mentioned how many starts he had. He had three different spells with the team. He was its original F1 driver in 1985 where the car was just absolutely hopeless. We, we talked before about Nanini's poor reliability record terrible in, in 1985 as well when he comes back to F1 after a spell in Formula 3000 which he, he kind of needed to rebuild his career frankly um, we mentioned earlier uh, Luis Perez Sala he, he comfortably had the measure of him and pretty much every teammate that he, he had at, at Minardi he was the stronger driver um, He's also helped by the fact that you know he drove for Minardi at the, the point when it was at its most competitive so he was able to get that front row start in Phoenix. He also led its only ever race lap at Estoril in 1989, um, which sort of roughly coincided with Nigel Mansell deciding to reverse in the pit lane. So that was kind of hidden from the broadcasts at the time as everyone was watching Mansell and this piece of history was was being ignored. Um, but he has just so many glittering moments in qualifying and um, and strong race drives. I mean, he, he scores its first ever point in, in Detroit 1988. The, the thing that I really wanted to... to talk about was the end of, of the 1989 season where he'd had to miss Suzuka due to rib pain this came after uh, some some really strong qualifying results where um, he was only behind the, the McLarens and the Ferraris but he comes back after after missing a race and he's third in Australia where Salah doesn't even qualify what a fantastic indictment that is of you know just the the, the figurehead Martini was for for the team frequent point scorer throughout you know his time there when when the opportunities were there. Um, he has a season with Scuderia Italia in '92. Comes back towards the end of '93 where he has the better of Fittipaldi and and Gunon in, in qualifying. Has the better of Michele Alboreto in '94 when and admittedly sort of flagging Alboreto is sort of coming towards the end of his um, F1 career. And then matches Badawa in in '95 before 
um, sort of stepping out as, as as Lamy comes in, there was no question of who was going to top this list. Frankly, Kev. Yeah, I've got I've got to agree. It's amazing how we've said this before, don't we? You say it almost every episode. It feels like we have to find one where there's not an obvious number one, won't we? If I was to go looking for a list where there's not an, number, an obvious number one, but yeah, I mean more starts. Yeah, more, I, and I think I'm looking up that it was. Uh, of the 38 points, I think it was, that Minardi scored in F1, Martini accounts for 16 of them, so almost almost half. When you're watching Formula 1 in the sort of late 80s, early 90s, like he, he, was, he was someone to look out for. Like you would look for him in qualifying. Like he was routinely in the, in the top 10. You know, if it was the point-scoring system that we have now, he'd score, he would have scored a lot more points uh, for Minardi as well, and a lot of them on merit. Um, okay, so I know that there were times where the tyres came into play and that helped him qualify higher than the car could race, but you still got to do the lap time. Um, yeah, so, I mean, he spent you know a large part of his career there, more starts from an idea than anyone else, the first driver. Uh, yeah, it's impossible, really, to, to, to put anyone else in at this, so... Um, yeah, it's almost like, well, right, we're doing a top 10 Minardi F1 drives. Who are we doing after we've got Martini in at one? It's almost that kind of thing. So That, can- was, that was very much the approach, <laughs> was Martini is unquestionably number one, who, who, who fills the remaining nine. Yeah, I mean, it, another way of looking at it is what do you think of when you think of these drivers? Most of these drivers, there's another image that comes to mind. But with Martini, it, it just is a Minardi, isn't it? It's a, it's, a, it's a Minardi in 89 or 90 up fighting with... Or, or chasing desperately the Ferraris and McLarens and the, you know the big boys really because Minardi were never that, um, but that's the closest they got to consistently being a thorn in the side of the you know of, of the big guns. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Martini Martini's Mister Minardi, isn't he? So I think that I think that's perfect. Brilliant. Well, I hope you've enjoyed another one of our top 10 lists. Thank you very much for listening to the Autosport podcast. Make sure you subscribe to the channel. And if you haven't left any feedback yet on the usual places like Apple Podcasts on your phone or your iTunes, uh, then you can do that. You can leave a little star rating and a few words about uh, why you listen to the Autosport podcast, maybe for these uh, these special series or the, uh, the other stuff that we do as well. Brilliant. Well, make sure you stay tuned. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary, void, or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. And for another top 10 list coming very soon in a week's time. Thank you very much for listening and we'll see you on the next one. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. The, is it morning yet, deal. How about now? Or now? Because morning time is McDonald's breakfast time. And that's the best time of all the times. Wake up with a little splash of sweetness. Get any size iced coffee from caramel to hazelnut to French vanilla for just 99 cents until 11 a.m. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. 
Sports Social Podcast Network. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.